So each year as we move through these Christmas stories, I try to peel back those layers of nostalgia, the romanticized and, and sanitized scenes of carols and cards and most of our nativity sets that, that have all but taken the reality out of the stories. And of, I'm not trying to be a Grinch and, and steal Christmas, but these stories, I think they are far too sacred, far too important, and far too world-altering to be reduced in the ways that we have done so culturally. For so long, we have settled for such, in this particular morning, the case of this morning, settled for such a distortion of Mary that it can be difficult to see, to, to hear the person who actually appears on the page. Right? We assume from the carols and the cards and the images that she was this meek and mild little girl, this obedient little girl. And sometimes our assumptions make it difficult to see the truth. So in order to see that truth, we need to understand a few things about, about Mary herself and the world in which she lived. As I've emphasized before, again, at the time of Jesus' birth, the Jewish people lived in a place called Roman Palestine. Under the rule of Emperor Augustus, Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire had expanded its domain to unprecedented lengths, colonizing indigenous populations from Spain and Western Europe down around the Mediterranean into North Africa, across the Middle East into modern-day Turkey and Iraq and Iran. In the time of Mary and Joseph, numerous violent rebellions against Roman troops had broken out across the Jewish homeland. People were tired of living under brutal occupation at the hands of Rome. The time had come, many believed, to throw off that yoke of foreign rule and to restore self-government. Now Augustus fancied himself, and, and he had the entire world, as far as he was concerned, proclaim that he was the Son of God, the Savior who had brought peace to the whole world. And he had done so through what was called the Pax Romana, showing no mercy to anyone who dared rise up and resist his rule and thereby disturb the peace. And so when rebellions broke out around Palestine, including at Sepphoris, the capital of Galilee, which is just a few miles north of Nazareth, Augustus didn't just send in troops to fight. He was going to punish. He was going to make an example and lay waste to the whole place. First, one legion was deployed, followed shortly thereafter by two more. 18,000 elitely trained troops, followed by 2,000 auxiliary cavalry, 1,500 more auxiliary infantry, as, a jo as Josephus, the Jewish historian of the time, records, the main force went into Jerusalem, where those Jewish rebels or freedom fighters or terrorists, I guess it depends on who's telling the story, were not only put down, but afterwards 2,000 of them were crucified along the Roman highway. It was a gruesome reminder to those who remained to not get uppity and accept your lot in life. 
This is your reality. At the same time, a detachment was sent to Galilee, where they likewise routed all who opposed them. And as Roman soldiers captured the city of Sepphoris and nearby villages, including Nazareth, where a young Mary lived, homes were plundered, inhabitants were enslaved, those that remained, and taken away. Only those who were able to physically flee survived. As one indigenous leader caught on the underside of that violence recorded, they make a wilderness, and they call it peace. Or as another resistor said, when you, when you had nothing, Rome took even that. You see, Rome in this moment, and Nazareth, Nazareth and the nearby villages was not just sending a message to that current generation, but to babies like Jesus, to future generations. When we are done with you, we won't need to return. Oh, you'll know better. To resist is futile, is death. This is the way of the world. This is the natural order of things. Might is right, and at the end of the day, military force rules the day. Get used to it. This describes those in our world who are blessed, who are highly favored by God, and those who are not. And this is the world in which the angel of God says to that Mary, the young Jewish girl from Nazareth, you are God's favored one. You are God's chosen, and you shall bear the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Yes, you, Mary, an olive-brown-skinned girl, no more than 14 years old, you, a colonized indigenous girl who bears the trauma of violence and conquest in your memory and your body. You, who bear the grief of loss of home, of familyhood, a family of livelihood. You, who bears the stigma of poverty and, well, now being pregnant out of wedlock. You who are powerless in this world, rendered invisible or forgotten or have seen ridiculed and demonized, you, Mary, are God's plan to save the world. It's a tragedy that Mary has either been erased by Protestants or transformed into this meek and mild, obedient little girl in so much of Catholicism and our Christmas carols, because the mother of Jesus, the woman who raises her voice in the aftermath of Roman violence to sing out the Magnificat, to sing praises as we read this morning to a God who looks with favor on the lowly, who scatters the arrogant, who pulls powerful men like Caesar down from their thrones, who lifts up those who have been laid low by Caesar's violence. This one who rejoices in her God and who, who fills the hungry and destitute 
with good things and sends the rich away empty. This Mary and her God and the salvation, the new life that will come from her, she sings, shall be remembered for generations. Listen. Can you hear Mary sing? This Mary is anything but meek and mild and blindly obedient. She is clearly strong and bold. She is defiant and proud and resilient. She is everything that young girls in her world and all too often still our own are taught not to be. And here we are, separated by 2,000 years and over 6,000 miles in a different language, in a different religion, remembering that girl from Nazareth. Remembering her defiant freedom song, her full-throated praise, her song of joy of a God who chooses to bless her and her kin. That God would, would choose to partner with her. That salvation for the entire world healing, liberation, restoration, that it would be born amidst, it would rise out of the rubble of empire's violence, rather than being born on a golden throne in Caesar's palace. As I thought about Mary this week, my mind went to the words of Lucille Clifton the descendant of enslaved West Africans who became a professor of poetry and was twice a finalist for the Pulitzer. She writes, Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see except to be myself? I made it up, here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other. Come, celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. This, friends, is Mary's song. Every day something, someone, has to try to tell me I don't belong. To tell me that I am worthless. That my pain and my dreams, they don't matter. Tell me I'm an abomination. Every day something has tried to kill me spiritually, physically, mentally, and has failed. I am still here singing. It's interesting to me that Zechariah as well, that moment that he speaks, if you recall, he, he hasn't had his voice back until this very moment that Elizabeth and Mary are together there at the birth of John, and he affirms Elizabeth's leadership, that the moment he gets his voice back, the first thing he does is praise God in a similar way. Right? His blessing isn't just, oh, thank you, God, for changing my life, giving me what I had hoped for. His language, did you catch that his language is collective? His particular joy 
expresses itself in the hope, the, the sign that this new life offers to all the people. Once again, this new life born amidst the rubble of empire's violence is not only a sign of God's presence with him, with them, but a sign of a future with hope for everyone. God's very deliverance of a world hell-bent on the forces of violence and death. God's deliverance comes from here. Did you hear how both Zechariah and Mary's full-throated songs of joy about the meaning of what God had done for them was partnering with them to bring about is salvation from those who oppress? It's an interesting thing when you're realizing, oh, God has done this thing for me, and you start singing about deliverance from oppression. Freedom to live and worship in dignity, not just me, but for all people. Now, on the one hand, I'm guessing as we hear this, we can feel a certain deep resonance with it, right? We can have this appreciation for this story. And at the same time, as I sat with it this week, this image of Mary and Zechariah, this voice from Scripture, it kind of is disturbing, isn't it? It disrupts us a little bit. Like, shouldn't Mary just be singing about everyone getting along and having enough? Like, why does she have to sing about the rich going away empty-handed and, and the tyrants being toppled from her, their thrones? Why does she have to use such strong language? Isn't that the opposite of what God calls us to imagine, to work toward? Isn't that just returning violence with violence, which we know only gets more violence? Miroslav Wolf, a professor of theology at, at Yale, who grew up as a minority in a repressive 1960s and 70s Eastern European context, has written, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence for us requires a belief in divine vengeance. Now, I know my thesis will be unpopular with most people in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have first been plundered and then burned and then leveled to the ground, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge or do anything. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea that God does nothing in response will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice, and deceptioning, and did not make a final end of violence, he says that God would not be worthy of our worship. Now, what Professor Wolf is saying, what, what I am saying, what many have said, is that there is a difference between the honest expression of pain amidst gut-wrenching realities that natural desire that all of us would have if we were caught on the underside of that violence, to get even, to express that, there's a difference between that place and actually acting on that pain. 
actually having the capacity to force, uh, to use force capable of destroying others. Those are two separate things. And it's a very thin line, I know. But we cannot hear or understand Mary's song if we cannot understand the visceral depths of Mary's grief and pain and those around her, of those brutal realities and everyday indignities of living under Roman occupation. Right? Pain that is not unearthed and expressed, that is not transformed, becomes transmitted. And that is when it turns to violence. As Ahimaora, the Nigerian artist and writer, the Yoruba priestess writes, you got to resurrect the pain deep within you and give it a place to live that is not within your body. Let it live in art. Let it live in writing. Let it live in music. Let it be devoured by building brighter connections. Your body is not a coffin for pain to be buried in. Put it somewhere else. You see, Mary is refusing to let the empire of violence use her pain to bury her alive. Still, Isaiah and Zechariah, Mary, Lucille Clifton, they all share this common fact that the moment their unexpected and defiant song of praise is over, well, the world remains as it was. Lands still lay in ruins. Mass graves dot the countryside. Homes and sacred spaces targeted and burned. The world is still the world. And yet, their song declares to the world that everything has changed. They are forever changed. They will no longer play small. No longer close their throats and remain silent. No longer go along with the status quo of business as usual, accepting the world as it is, because the world is not as God desires for it to be. Because God desires their flourishing. And the scandal in all of this, for me as I was thinking about it this this year in particular, as I was reflecting on it, the scandal in all of this is its particularity. That is, the good news doesn't begin with this abstract, universal notion of salvation, of liberation, of, of life for everyone. Good news. God loves you all. It doesn't even begin by immediately lifting up everyone's pain side by side, the Romans alongside the Jews doesn't begin by saying, hey, both are suffering. Or even, in our present context, we might ask by lifting up both the Israeli and Palestinian pain. It doesn't, doesn't begin by doing this sort of double move. Immediately doing this, I think, is too often used to diminish one party's actual pain in order to maintain the status quo. You see, Scripture tells the story of a very particular Mary and her baby born in a very particular context. And it says, look here. 
Behold, this is where God chooses to be born. This is where hope comes from. You want to know liberation, fullness of life? You want to hear the song of joy? Then you have to be able to hear it and honor it in Mary and Yeshua, her baby Jesus, born amidst the rubble. Salvation is for the whole world. It is, don't mishear me, it is for everyone, for all of us, for the Roman, for the Israeli, for the American. But scripture is clear that it extends outward from Mary and from the Marys of our world amidst the rubble. See, when we begin with that understanding, with opening our hearts to this Mary's pain, rather than sort of diminishing it in light of everybody else's pain too, when we begin by focusing on the particularity of her pain, then we begin to learn that that Roman pain and Jewish pain, our pain, is not diminished in comparison. That it's not only Mary's pain that matters, but instead, if, if God chooses such people like Mary amidst their pain and hopelessness, then surely God chooses us and everyone else amidst their pain and hopelessness. Then surely you can also dare to imagine and sing of being chosen, of having dignity, even when the world has rendered you invisible or worthless. Honoring the fullness of Mary's story doesn't exclude others. It is the very thing that draws that circle wide and insists that God meets each and all of us there in our shame, in those places shrouded by despair and grief. God meets you there and holds you tenderly until, like Mary, you are able to receive the good news in the depths of your being and sing out a song of dignity, a song so disruptive that you are never the same and neither is the world around you. Friends, can you, can you hear this song of Mary, this full-throated freedom song reverberating in our world today? Can you hear it echoing within yourself? May it be so for your salvation, for the salvation of all the world.